For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. Our articles are free. Our podcasts are free. Our videos are free. And we want to keep it that way so that our ideas can reach as wide an audience as possible. And it's only thanks to those of you who donate that we are able to do this, that we are able to have a packed website that is accessible to everyone. If you haven't yet donated and you'd like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Giving as little as £5 a month can really make a huge difference and help Spite carry on doing what we're doing. So if you'd like to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Right, on with the show. There's been a complete reversal of what should be the natural state of affairs, which ought to be things illegal unless they are specifically banned. Whereas it's almost been as if everything's illegal unless we tell you you can do it. The very idea that government should get involved in our personal lives to the extent that they have attempted to is a terrible precedent. And this is why even when all lockdown measures are over, that's when the battle really begins. Because I and others are going to campaign relentlessly to make sure there can never ever be lockdowns again. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Luke Johnson. Luke is an entrepreneur, an investor and a writer. He was a co-founder of Risk Capital Partners. He has had numerous business interests over the years, including being chairman of Pizza Express, a non-executive director at Metro Bank, and part owner of Giraffe Restaurants. Luke also has a number of philanthropic pursuits. He is chairman of the Institute of Cancer Research, and he has previously been a chairman of the Royal Society of Arts and a chairman of Channel 4 Television Corporation. Luke writes widely. He has been a columnist for the Financial Times, the Sunday Telegraph and the Sunday Times, and he has written numerous books on business and entrepreneurship. Over the past year, Luke has been one of the few people in the business world who has criticised aspects of the lockdown and talked openly about its impact on our liberties, our lives and the economy. So Luke, at the time that we are talking... Around 35 million Brits have had their first dose of the vaccination. The number of deaths and COVID cases has plummeted. We've had a 24-hour period in which there was only one COVID death recorded. And yet we still have to wait another few weeks before we properly have our freedoms back. We're still banned from traveling out of the country. We're still not allowed to spend the night at other people's houses 
And there are people openly talking about the possibility that these kinds of restrictions will need to last for a long time, the new normal, as they call it. So there are reasons to be optimistic because there's a light at the end of the lockdown tunnel. But are you worried that that optimism, that positivity will be overridden by the dragging out of some of these restrictive policies? I hope not. I hope that the momentum builds amongst the British public that freedom is wonderful and that retaining or regaining our basic rights is a hugely positive thing and they're not going to give them up again. And uh, I have been disappointed at how mm. easily people swapped freedom for safety or parent safety. I hope we can as quickly swap back to reminding ourselves about the pleasures of life, about the fact that sadly this disease is very discriminatory and that the vast majority of the population are actually at very low risk from it and always have been, and get things in proportion, which unfortunately the authorities, I believe, and the their advisors have not. So, okay, let's go back to the beginning to try and work out how this situation came around, how we had a situation where, as you've just described, people were quite willing to sacrifice their freedoms for a period of time, and in which there was not as much pushback against lockdown as people like you and I would have liked to have seen. So if we go back to March 2020, I remember hearing that there had been a lockdown, firstly in China, of course, and then in Italy, and thinking, that's bizarre, that could never possibly happen in the UK. Of course, it did happen in the UK. We were in and out of lockdown for a year, more than a year, in fact. Now, there's the infamous Neil Ferguson interview in which he said, we never thought we could get away with doing what the Chinese regime had done. But then we saw that Italy and others were doing it. And we thought that maybe we could get away with it. So going back to March 2020, what do you think were the conditions that made it possible to have a historically unprecedented suspension of liberty in this country and a lockdown that ended up lasting far longer than people were told? I think it was a combination of factors. I think it is the modern mass media that enabled and amplified the hysteria. I think the power of fear is clearly never to be underestimated. I think we, generally speaking, live in incredibly secure times. And so people are scared quite easily, actually. I think the combination of the government and the broadcasters and the digital universe all combining to endorse this, in my opinion, medieval policy of universal lockdowns, the institutional corporate scientific world all getting behind this one intervention, unproven and unprecedented, and the idea that there was no alternative. And in this particular country, we had no opposition in terms of the Labour Party have always endorsed lockdowns because they like the idea of more government. And of course, to a fair degree, you know, they're, they've been bought lock, stock and barrel by the NHS and vice versa. I think in a way, our worship of the NHS and adoration of the NHS has amplified the whole idea that protecting the NHS is more important for, sadly, a lot of people who've suffered things like cancer than life itself. And so, again, we haven't got that in proper context. I think the ruling elite 
were perfectly happy to work from home. And thanks to the digital universe, they could communicate and get deliveries. So they were safe. And uh, meantime, super low interest rates meant that the government could stuff our mouths with money in the form of furlough. So at its peak, I think I'm right in saying it was 11 million people were paid to stay at home. Mm. Again, a lunatic policy in my opinion, but for the consequences and the, you know, enforced idleness like that, the the negative things that flow from that is terrible. Mm. And I guess it's a very complicated equation to balance out the purported benefits of lockdown versus the multiple short and long-term damages of lockdown. And so the costs were never and have never been decently calculated. And we live in a sentimental age where even one death is too many. Mm. And the government here and elsewhere, I think, have quite deliberately not focused on the single unchanging fact about this disease, really, that has never been in dispute from January last year, which is that you are a thousand times more at risk if you are elderly and unwell than if you are young and healthy. And so I saw some stats the other day. So, for example, I think I'm right in saying that up until a week or two ago, in hospitals in England, 87,000 people have died from COVID, but under 100 people have died from COVID who are under 40 and healthy. So less than one-tenth of 1% of the victims of this disease have been under 40 and healthy. And yet they comprise, I'm not quite sure, but quite possibly a majority of the population. And so nowhere have governments been honest with their populations and said, actually, this is the one thing we do know about this disease. It kills the elderly and the sick. And so we need to protect them at all costs. But the idea that we would imprison the rest of the population for extended periods of time, remove all your basic liberties, which we didn't even do in wartime, is itself wrong. And no governments were prepared really to take that line. To a degree, they did in Sweden. And obviously, in certain Asian countries, they haven't had lockdowns. But, you know, getting the calculations right is complicated. It requires a sophisticated citizenry to understand the trade-offs. And clearly, it involves science. And for the most part, people aren't educated in science and not confident about challenging scientists, and unfortunately, particularly governments. So our cabinet has essentially no scientific qualifications, certainly not in medicine or healthcare. So they weren't ever capable of arguing with the scientists. And we had this unelected, to a fair degree, unknown group called SAGE, who have presented, I I feel, a very one-sided view of what is the right thing to do. And clearly, it's always been in their interests, if you like, for various reasons, to exaggerate the risks and to adopt the precautionary principle at all costs. And so that's what, as a country, we've done, and to a large degree, others have. And I think we and America copied Italy and copied China, and Mm. we led the way for the rest of the developed world. And I think, you know, there's a strong argument to say, yes, according to some measures, 3 million people have died from this disease in a bit over a year, but actually 60 million people more than will have died of other things during that period. And the collateral damage of lockdowns will probably never be fully measured. 
But I think in terms of quality adjusted life years, for example, lockdowns will have caused vastly more harm than COVID ever will have. And the authorities in their various forms, the science community, the politicians, the civil servants, to a degree, the media, have got a vast sunk cost in terms of embracing the policies that they promoted. And so, uh, you know, we will probably never get a fair assessment Mm -hmm. of what we've done. I want to come back to the question of trade-offs or or why there was an unwillingness to have a a serious, honest, science-based discussion about the costs of lockdown and the consequences of lockdown or in relation to the impact of the disease itself. And we're told that we live in an evidence-based age. We're told that we live in a science-based age, but there was a real reluctance to have that. So I want to dig down into that in a moment. But firstly, just sticking with the origins of lockdown and how it swept the country so quickly and so successfully, and there was very little pushback, certainly at the beginning. You mentioned there the role of fear and the role of the politics of fear. And you've described the atmosphere in the early part of the lockdown as project fear on steroids. And I can remember for the first time in my life, I stopped watching the news because it was just this, the rolling news was full of these unbelievably morbid reports from Italian hospitals. And there was lots of claims that this disease could strike down anyone, even though quite early on, we knew that it had a disproportionate impact on the elderly, but that every time a young person died, that was instantly flagged up. It was front page news. It was seen as beneficial to Project Fear. And there are some people who've talked about the devastating impact that the politics of fear can have on society itself. So why do you think Project Fear was successful in relation to COVID, where, for example, it hadn't been particularly successful in relation to Brexit, where the electorate was bombarded with fearful claims about the consequences of the vote that they enacted and, and how it would devastate their lives and so on? That didn't cut through in the way that the COVID Project Fear did. So what do, do you think was different in relation to that? Well, the single obvious difference is one was largely about economics and the other is about life and death Mm -hmm. and I think to a degree we live in a secular age where people are in denial about their mortality and people are petrified of of being ill and dying and uh, therefore when their own personal welfare like that is viscerally threatened as they see it via these images and these constant bombardments of scaremongering so of course even very rational, sensible, educated people lose their marbles. And that's what happened to a fair degree. And I think I, you know, for a couple of weeks was being hypochondriac myself. Mm -hmm. And I think I would have carried on like that conceivably if my wife hadn't been working in the NHS and working for some of the period on COVID wards and saying, pull yourself together, man. (laughs) You know, I'm actually dealing with patients who've got COVID. You're sitting here at home, piped down. (laughs) And uh, very good it was too. And, you know, one gradually retained one's sanity and thought we've got to get this in proportion. But I, I do now worry that because Project Fear has been so successful, there are many hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people who have serious hypochondria now, who have agoraphobia, and you see them on the street, people who have undoubtedly been vaccinated, still wearing masks outside, still petrified of coming within metres of other human beings. And there are stories of people who have barely ventured out of their homes for well over a year 
and you think this is scary stuff. Mm. You know, governments are not meant to petrify mm. their citizens into cases of acute anxiety. And it's just when one of the many harms that I think has been inflicted on us by this wrong-headed policy. Absolutely agree with that. And I think one of the one of the other factors alongside the politics of fear was the tendency towards groupthink. Now you you've written about groupthink in relation to SAGE. I think the other thing that became very clear in March and April last year was the dangers of censorship or the dangers of a censorious culture. Because I remember anyone, and this includes people around spiked, anyone who raised questions about the lockdown or who raised questions about the closure of pubs, for example, which I did in The Spectator and lived to regret it in terms of the Twitter storm that ensued, there was a ferocious reaction against those kinds of people. They were written off as being pro-death, not caring if old people died, being on the side of the disease. I mean, these hysterical claims were made and there was an explicit attempt to shrink the parameters of what it was acceptable to say in an era of crisis in in this time of pandemic. Whereas I always thought what it actually demonstrated, I would say, is that how important freedom of speech becomes in a time of crisis, because that's precisely when you need the right to question what the experts are saying, to question the course of action that is being taken, especially if it is one that undermines our freedoms in a way that has never happened before. So what role do you think that kind of groupthink pressure, that pressure on people to nod along to the lockdown and not raise any criticisms. To what extent do you think that went hand in hand with Project Fear to create a culture in which it became genuinely quite difficult for people to raise concerns? Well, it obviously happened, didn't it? It became deeply politically incorrect to question science, Mm. to doubt the effectiveness of lockdowns, to highlight the fact that actually the disease is very dangerous to the elderly and the ill, but not to the young and the fit. And society began to resemble a totalitarian community, not a proper functioning democracy at all. And I think, you know, one of the cornerstones of a democracy is a free media, a press and broadcast. And unfortunately, I think to a fair degree, at least in the early weeks and months of the pandemic, the media were supine and cowed. Now, they gradually, in some cases, got their voices back. But unfortunately, I would say the broadcasters uniformly have stuck to the party line. So they have been aggressively pro-lockdown. And, you know, this has been exacerbated, I think, by um, requirements of Ofcom, which is to sort of bring in, you know, wartime-type rules about supporting the national effort and not questioning certain aspects of government policy. And for example, one of the tricks I think the pro-lockdowners have used is to deliberately conflate anyone who questions lockdowns with those who are anti-vaccine. Mm. So you are immediately an extremist anti-vaxxer. Yeah. And as it happens, speaking personally, I'm very pro the vaccine. Mm. I didn't think the vaccine would be as available as quickly or the vaccines as available as quickly as they have been. I think it's a remarkable miracle of science. And we should be very grateful, particularly in this country, because we've rolled it out very effectively. But because certain people out there who are anti-vaccine are also anti-lockdown, they deliberately lump you together 
so that you are all seen as in denial of basic science and, you know, dangerous. And that way it shuts down dissent. And so any contrarian thinking is uh, closed off. And there's a single message of fear, pro-lockdown. We're doing this for the common good. We're all in this together, which, of course, we all know is a complete lie mm. itself. Mm. And that way the government, so to speak, can get away with these dystopian laws and behaviours that are utterly unprecedented even in wartime. That's a really important point, the way in which there was this slippery conflation of people who were sceptical of lockdown with people who thought that this was a scamdemic and, uh, you know, the use of the term COVID sceptic to and describe And you're suddenly people. a conspiracy theorist. Yes. You know, um, it's to do with Bill Gates and uh, the World Economic <laughs> Forum, I don't know, all the stuff that certain people were breathing. You're with them. And therefore, nothing you say is reliable. You're anti-science and uh, you are a non-person. Absolutely. And an explicit campaign of demonisation. I mean, that is what happened. It was a campaign of demonisation against anyone who criticised the government policy. Yes. And in a democracy, that is not a good, that no. is not what should and, happen. And unfortunately, because, as I say, you have had a Labour Party who have agreed with the government and probably would have gone even further than this government mm. in terms of these draconian measures because, you know, they are captured by the public service unions and so therefore inevitably they're pro a lot of the actions the government have, have taken to expand the state. Therefore, you've had no political opposition, you've had minimal media questioning of what's going on and you've had, unfortunately, the scientific establishment largely speaking with one voice, which I think is perhaps the most depressing aspect of this. Science, which is progressed through questioning and experimentation and not conformity and uh, silencing critics. That isn't how scientific progress works. But in this case, a policy which was not part of pandemic preparedness, which there is still no serious research which suggests that lockdowns are worth it mm. and are truly effective, whereas the collateral damage is undoubted, and yet, you know, the West adopted them wholesale. I love the feeling of learning something new. That's what I get every time I watch or listen to The Great Courses Plus. This streaming service gives you access to hundreds of fantastic courses and lectures, and I have an incredible deal for my listeners. First, you can get a free trial. And then if you like it, you can get an extra 20% off when you sign up for the annual membership. But you have to use my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan. You can access a whole world of knowledge for less than you'd spend on coffee each month. I've just watched a fantastic lecture on George Orwell and the left. It explores the conflict of Orwell's left-wing instincts and his great compassion for the oppressed with the rigidity of the socialists around him. It's part of the fantastic series George Orwell, A Sage for All Seasons, which, once you've started, you won't want to stop. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll get thousands of hours of fascinating content across hundreds of topics like ancient Greece or the evolution of technology or even learn how to play chess. You'll get access to video, audio and guidebooks and new content is added every month. And you can watch or listen anywhere at any time with the Great Courses Plus app. 
So don't miss out on this great deal. Go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan to get your free trial. And my listeners will also get 20% off the annual membership. Once again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan. So I want to talk about the impact of lockdown, because this is the thing that for a period of time, you weren't allowed to talk about, or certainly you would get a lot of blowback if you did talk about it. Although I've noticed that some media outlets have in recent weeks and months started to raise these questions, having spent the early part of the lockdown coming down like a ton of bricks on anyone who dared to raise these questions. But let's talk about this is a free space so we can talk about anything we want, regardless of what the chattering classes think we should be allowed to talk about. So let's talk about the impact of lockdown. And I want to look at three different areas in relation to this. The first is the impact of lockdown on its most obvious impact, which is in relation to freedom. So you've written about the, uh, you've just described it now as a medieval policy. It had an extraordinary impact on everyday liberty. There was this almost hysterical, ceaseless production of government laws and restrictions many of them passed without democratic oversight, which governed the minutiae of our lives. Could you sit on a bench? Could you walk in the street? Could you leave your house? Why? What, can you what hug reason? your granny? Can you hug someone? I, you know, we now have government ministers saying you'll be able to hug people in two weeks' time. I mean, the most extraordinary control of everyday life. I want to ask you in relation to that impact of lockdown, well, firstly, what do you think about it? And why do you think that was it was a problem that freedom was suspended so clearly? But also, what do you think it tells us about the broader attitude to freedom that something pre-existing the pandemic, that something like this could happen without much of a fuss? Well, I think that's a very deep and troubling issue, isn't it? Because to me, there's been a sort of low level agony throughout this whole 14 months or so of feeling that you are permanently constrained in what you are allowed to do, that there's been a complete reversal of what should be the natural state of affairs, which ought to be things are legal unless they are specifically banned. Whereas it's almost been as if everything's illegal unless we tell you you can do it. And the very idea that government should get involved in our personal lives to the extent that they have attempted to over the last period is a terrible precedent. And this is why even when all lockdown measures are over, that's when the battle really begins. Mm. Because I and others are going to campaign relentlessly to make sure there can never, ever be lockdowns again. And and this is despite the confidence of people like Neil Ferguson, who's saying, well, this will be the default measure from now on. No, it won't. Mm. Because I think our rational abilities have been suspended for too long. And we need to remind people, particularly younger people, that they have been in some ways, as a group, the biggest losers from this terrible period. You know, their lives have been on hold for well over a year. And we know all about the crushed experiences of students, for example, and others. And, you know, no doubt we can talk about all the other harms of medical treatments not carried out and of mental illness and of businesses and destroyed and jobs lost and the multiplying and diverse harms caused by lockdowns were never even contemplated by sage because they would argue that's not what we were asked Mm. and by the way we don't make the decisions we just provide the advice but of course the government weren't 
capable of or equipped to really critique the advice. So therefore, they took it wholesale, particularly when our prime minister is a very dominant figure in politics, very dominant, fell ill with COVID. Mm. And so inevitably, this was terrible confluence of events that meant we ended up where we have with three terrible lockdowns. And despite that, supposedly one of the worst Mm -hmm. uh, deaths per million. And, you know, I think there's one specific, actually, downside of universal lockdowns, which is that you focus on everyone rather than focusing on the vulnerable. Yeah. And so as a member on BBC television of SAGE, or one of the government committees has admitted, they didn't really think very hard about care homes. Yeah. And so I think one of the reasons why the government has been relentless in its policies about lockdowns and the fear and so forth is because they have known for a long time that the care homes were a disaster, that they deliberately introduced to care homes infected elderly people from hospitals who then infected the other residents of the care homes. And the care homes, depending on which of the studies you're reading, one study in uh, Scotland, I think it was, 40% of the people in that period who died caught their disease in a care home because obviously a very high proportion of people who died were in care homes, even if they died in hospital. And if they had, by contrast, protected the care homes and their residents properly in expensive and organised ways and thoughtful ways and had focused protection, then perhaps the outcome just of people within care homes and then in the overall total of deaths would have been better. And by the way, there would have been much more limited collateral damage to the general population's lives and the economy as a whole. I think that that's a, a very good description of the inhumanity of authoritarianism. And it always strikes me that the irony, the dark, twisted irony of lockdown sceptics being accused of not caring about older people's lives, when in fact it was the myopic nature of lockdown, this sense that you had to shut down the entire population, this obsession with shutting down the entire population and policing people who were walking their dogs or leaving their homes or going for two jogs a day rather than one and keeping healthy 35-year-olds at home for months and months on end. It was that obsession which meant that they were distracted from what ought to have been the chief focus in relation to a disease that impacted disproportionately on the elderly, which was number one, protecting care homes, most obviously, and number two, offering protection to other vulnerable sections of society. But because they became so obsessed with a universal lockdown, they were distracted from that more sensible, liberal, caring course of action. But that that brings me on to the second impact of lockdown that I wanted to raise with you, which is in relation to health. And this is the thing that I have found most shocking in some ways, which is you've written about COVID monomania. So that this singular obsession with COVID meant that people stopped caring or certainly officialdom stopped caring about other forms of ill health. We know that numerous cancers will have been gone undiagnosed. There is a report shortly before we're recording this podcast about cases of dementia going undiagnosed and therefore untreated. So there are huge sections of society whose lives will have been thrown upside down by the obsession with just focusing on the problem of COVID and not looking at the broader health problems that face society. How did that come about? How did we get to a situation where we almost said that things like cancer and dementia and 
heart disease and other things can be very suddenly and brutally demoted because we have to focus on this one illness. You mentioned earlier the problem of protect the NHS, worship the NHS, the transformation of the NHS in alter, almost into a pseudo-modern religion. Do you think that contributed to a sense where there almost became a situation where the NHS doesn't serve us, but we serve the NHS, and therefore health is not the actual aim, but protecting that institution becomes the aim? Yes, I mean, it's a bizarre state of affairs that I suspect over the last 12 months we've probably spent in excess on the NHS as a whole of £200 billion, which is probably, you know, 30 or 40% more than we normally would have. Yet despite that, for example, right now, quite a high proportion of GP surgeries are barely open. They will only do remote consultancies. So, of course, there are lots of scary diagnoses which are being missed because you can't do all sorts of tests and checks remotely. It doesn't work. And indeed, a lot of patients don't bother because they can't even get through to get an appointment. And that's just one small example of how the NHS is not currently working properly for patients if you don't have COVID. And, you know, if you take 2020 and 2021, during which we will have had COVID, there will have been uh, of the order of 1.2 million deaths. Probably no more than 10 to 15% of those at most will have been COVID. So what about the other 85 to 90% of deaths? Of course, very few of them are infectious diseases, or rather not that many. So the big killers, heart disease, cancer and dementia are not infectious. So it doesn't have that sort of primeval fear of, well, I can't catch this from you, so therefore it's got to be seen differently. But the fact of the matter is, unlike those three other diseases, COVID is very concentrated, you know, average age of death, 82, something like 95% of COVID victims have a comorbidity, very concentrated in the elderly and ill, whereas cancer and all sorts of other things that kill people can happen amongst younger people, for example, and people in otherwise good health. And so if you look at quality adjusted life years again, which has been the standard measure of how to ration healthcare prior to the last 18 months, then you would say that the spending and the effort and the attention that's gone on to COVID is completely false and misguided and not part of any healthcare system until now. And, you know, I think throughout history, even modern times, at certain points, countries and even the whole world go sort of mad about things. They just do, I'm afraid. And obviously, you know, it happened in Germany in the 1930s. And uh, there are probably other examples one might be able to think of in more recent times, you know, weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq, etc. And I think this was society-wide nuts on a, on a vast scale. Uh, of course, COVID's a dangerous disease, a mm -hmm. nasty disease, particularly for the elderly and the ill. And it needed immediate action mm -hmm. to deal with it. But the disproportionate reaction that society's adopted, which, you know, it seems is still a response that's approved of by a, a big proportion of the population, you've got to worry that they've basically been brainwashed. They didn't really get any alternative idea of what approach might have been adopted. 
And it's too scary to question what the government and the doctors and the scientists are all saying, and indeed the TV and, and online. So therefore, it must be right. But that doesn't mean to say it is. Mm. Absolutely. Well, if we look at then the third impact of, of lockdown or another area in which it's had a, a devastating impact, in which there has been some pushback or certainly some concern amongst many ordinary people is in relation to the economy and the impact it will have on the health of the economy, the future of people's jobs and those kinds of issues where I think people are concerned at certainly as furlough came to an end and the realisation that many people had been on a suspended form of unemployment, essentially, and there's going to be a lot of fallout from that. You are from the private sector. You're one of the few voices in the private sector who has spoken up a lot about lockdown, although there are other voices now coming to the fore, especially from pubs and small businesses and others like that. Just describe to us how you think the economic fallout might play out and also, why do you think there has been silence among the business elites about some of the impact on lockdown on what they do? The impact is obvious. As a country, the, the government has taken on at least 300 billion, could well be 400 billion of additional debt to cope with all the sea bills loans and the furlough payments and the additional investment in the NHS and track and trace and all the other costs and subsidies that they've had to incur to keep the economy alive. I mean, for example, I travelled here by tube and for over a year, most public transport has been running at full pelt, 100% subsidised by the government, empty, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. for over a year. Nuts. It's a sort <laughs> of weird attempt to try and project normality or something. I don't know. And then they've been discouraging people from using it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's a specific example, but costing the taxpayer, I'm sure in total tens of millions, uh, shows the institutional craziness that, that abounds. Obviously, lots of companies have gone bust, fewer than I expected, because I think the government loans and other subsidies have propped businesses up, some of which will be zombies, but others of which will survive. Again, Unemployment so far has not been nearly as bad as I feared. I thought it would be 10% by now or more. It's not much more than half that currently. We have yet to see the full impact once furlough ends in the autumn, and there are still three, four million on furlough. And when they all come off furlough, will they still have a job? I don't know. It's interesting that actually in, for example, hospitality, because everyone is reopening on the 17th in full, restaurants and pubs, suddenly there's job shortages because meantime, mm. quite a lot of people, both because of lockdown and because of Brexit, have gone back home to their country of origin in the EU. And I don't think they're coming back anymore because, mm. you know, London's a bit depressing during lockdown, etc. Mm. So a curious situation where unemployment has not got as bad as, as one worried. We shall see what the final tally is at the end of this year. Obviously, there is a lot of scarring of businesses, you know, debts to be repaid, both to government and other creditors. There have been some insolvencies, but not as bad as perhaps there might have been. It feels as if there is quite a recovery coming for the UK, partly because I think we've done well with our vaccine programme, partly because consumers have got about £170 billion of money they haven't spent on commuting and on going on holiday and going out 
that they will spend over the next 12 months. And obviously governments around the world have pump-primed economies, printed a lot of money, Mm. chopped interest rates, and flooded the world's economy with central bank money. Ultimately, that is unsustainable, and it's already leading to, for example, inflation, which may itself kick up interest rates. So it's going to have negative effects down the road. And as with other impacts, like on cancer treatment, for example, the immediate cost of government response to the pandemic won't be felt. It will be over a year or two or three or four that we will really face higher taxes and lower growth and misallocation of capital and all that sort of thing, which all have negative implications for our standard of living. So that's the economy and the impact on business and industry as a whole. And also, I think in a rational world, what the government has done, which is interfere in an unprecedented way with how people can apply their trade, should scare investors and entrepreneurs and make them think twice about risking their capital and their time to open or start a business or grow a business if at any moment the government could suddenly shut you down on a whim. Mm. And again, that's never happened before. And the whole, you know, property rights and the freedom to do business is more questionable than it used to be just because of what's happened. I think in terms of why business leaders have not spoken out, I'm afraid to say that I think many of those in power in the corporate world are conformists. And as we discussed earlier, they are not willing to adopt a contrarian approach. I've had privately one or two captains of industry contact me saying, I agree with you, Luke, but I can't really say it publicly. Mm -hmm. My PR advisor says, uh, you know, I I would get (laughs) criticised as being uncaring capitalist who's only interested in money and business and profit at the price of, you know, frontline workers or the elderly or whoever it is. And all that matters is saving the NHS. Everything else is is secondary. Well, unfortunately, it's not true, is it? We all know that the poorer a society is, the less healthy it is and the less happy it is. And if, you know, by doing what we've done to, in what I believe is a vain attempt to stop COVID, we end up less well off, then almost certainly there will be cost to that in terms of shortened lives, in terms of more miserable lives. And so if we're interested in well-being, then uh, I think the government have got it wrong. Yes, completely agree. I think that was one of the most frustrating things about the lockdown discussion, certainly in the early days, was this pantomime tension that was created between the economy versus lives. So you were either on the side of saving lives or, or you were on the side of rich people getting even richer via the economy, when in fact, we all know the economy is lives too. It is how we produce enough in order to have a health service. It's how people stay employed and engaged and fit and happy. And, and the downturn of that stuff can have a really serious impact on on health as well. Sticking with the economic question or the broader economic issue, I also wanted to ask you about differential attitudes to lockdown. Because one of the things that was quite striking, and you've you've written and spoken about this as well, was some people got very comfortable with lockdown and almost seemed to enjoy it. And they were, for the most part, public sector types, people who knew that their jobs were secure, people who knew that they could work from home or they didn't have to work at all for a period of time and they were kind of enjoying the time off. And also people who tended to live in a nice house and probably had a garden, 
had access to a nice park and the badly paid guys on Deliveroo could bring them their trendy meals on a Saturday night, all that stuff. And for those people, I'm sure it was pretty nice. But there was another section of society, many of whom will have been employed in the private sector, who will have been worried for the future of their jobs, who may not have had access to a garden or an open space. So to what extent do you think the media narrative around lockdown and the political narrative of, around lockdown was formed by people for whom it was not actually very onerous, rather than us listening to the voices of people for whom it was a real burden to be put into lockdown? Well, it's quite obvious to me that what I call the overclass, which are <laughs> politicians, civil servants, academics, people in the media, the people who very largely determine, you know, the overall narrative, make the rules, enforce the rules, decide the laws, uh, publicise what's going on, and in this case, obviously, provide the science advice and so forth. To a woman and man, they will have been able to work from home. They will be in safe jobs. They will have not had a business at risk where if it goes down, they their homes repossessed. They will all have been a certain age, I would say, you know, middle-aged and older. So inevitably, therefore, feeling a little bit more personally at risk from this disease, which I think has always been a fact. I think everyone mm. has viewed this disease ultimately through the prism of their own personal risk profile. And as you say, they've led undisturbed, comfortable lives on Netflix, working on Zoom, avoiding long commutes, which they hated, uh, not going on grubby public transport where there might be <laughs> viruses. And the 10 million people who meantime had to work, mm. you know, the people collecting the rubbish, yeah. the builders, yeah. the supermarket workers, the construction workers, the people who kept the mobile phone services going, the delivery drivers, the NHS staff, frankly, uh, actually still working in hospital, not the admin staff at home. You know, broadly speaking, except for perhaps the NHS stuff, these are the little people mm. as far as our ruling elite are concerned. And they can carry on forever putting themselves at risk. And, of course, one of the other extraordinary consequences of what's happened is because actually stock markets and assets, housing, etc., have gone up in value, quite a lot of these people are richer than they were. Yeah. Yeah. They haven't had interrupted pay. They've been able to work shorter hours because they haven't had to commute. And they've seen more of their family. They, they live in nice homes. So, of course, as far as they're concerned, isn't lockdown rather wonderful? Mm. As if it's even vaguely sustainable or fair or rational. But I think the idea that community became more thoughtful and generous is a farce. Mm. Actually, I think a great many people were incredibly selfish because lockdown suited them. They weren't ever going to complain about it. In fact, they were keen on promoting it. Yeah. And they didn't give a damn about the people that actually had to go out and work. And because their home went up in value and because their home was awfully comfy and they were able to invest in it, they were very happy. And what's the problem? Despite the untold misery of untreated ailments and lack of schooling for millions of children and businesses going broke, that wasn't their problem. Devil take the hindmost. And the idea that we were all being more generous citizens and they were able to virtue signal during this and, and supposedly show by staying safe 
that they were keeping other people safe was was the sort of most grotesque piece of icing on the cake as far as I was concerned. So these people were able to take advantage and still look as if they were virtuous. Absolutely. And as you said earlier, the idea that we were all in it together was a fantasy. And that is a very apt description of why that was such a fantasy. I often wonder what would happen if bin men had been furloughed. You know, how long would lockdown last then? About two weeks. Two two weeks maximum. Till the rubbish had piled up high (laughs) enough on each person's street that it started to become a health hazard. That's right. And then they would say, okay, we need to end this lockdown. Yeah, back to normal now. I completely agree. And that's a very good description of of the, the class divisions and the tensions that existed in lockdown that few people are willing to talk about. Spiked is publishing more than ever. Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spike produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. But another thing I want to, going back even further, I want to ask you about the origins of lockdown even before COVID-19 existed, even before it leapt from whatever animal it leapt from into a human being. Because it strikes me that a lot of or the... laboratory. Or laboratory, <laughs> but it strikes me that a lot of the trends that we're talking about and a lot of the political ideas we're talking about in relation to lockdown existed prior to lockdown. So, for example, if you look at the idea of the precautionary principle, safetyism, the idea that being safe is the cardinal virtue of all good societies and taking a risk is a very bad thing to do and you should just live in your safe space. I mean, the word, the phrase safe space has existed for a long time. The dismissive attitude towards freedom, the sense of atomization, a lot of these things existed prior to COVID-19. A lot of people will say to people like you and I, they would say, listen, lockdown is just the right proportionate response to an unprecedented threat. Whereas in fact, it was quite obviously informed by pre-existing political culture. And so to, to what extent do you think lockdown was the logical conclusion in some ways to lots of the problematic, illiberal, woke, safety obsessed trends that have existed for quite a long time? Well, I'm sure... It is a continuum of that, and we live in a more risk-averse society than it used to be, and a society that is more, you know, closed in cotton wool. And for the likes of you or I, we see that as a bad thing in that, Mm. you know, I think adventure and personal responsibility and going out and exploring the world are the essence of life. But unfortunately, I fear that for a great many others, they would disagree with us that uh, as far as they're concerned, safety always trumps freedom. Mm. And they are chasing after an illusion because this idea that, uh, you know, things are safe is itself a nonsense. Of course, we all know that everything from smoking cigarettes, which as far as I know, still illegal to drinking alcohol, to driving cars and many other activities have risks attached to them, but we accept those and the trade-off that goes with them. But people are very uneducated, I think, about 
judging risk in their various aspects of life. And I think it's probably fair to say that one of the reasons why I've been outspoken and persistent in this cause is because having been running my own businesses and having had successes and failures for many years and, you know, you you live with that drama, it gives you a different perspective on yeah. life, I think. I think life is to be embraced and lived. It isn't to be frightened and hiding away, cowering in your own home, wanting other people to do things for you almost exclusively with this idea that there is some mirage of safety out there that, you know, we can all achieve in an ideal world. It's just babyish and people need to grow up. And it's all about taking sensible risks rather than mad risks. But you've got to look at the big picture. And unfortunately, I think lockdown proponents never look at the big picture. The big picture includes all the aspects of life and society that if you take an incredibly complicated dynamic machine like a modern society and to a fair degree shut it down, it is going to have devastating consequences across so many aspects, which it's actually going to be very difficult to measure. But even in the basic ways we can measure, we can see that the harms of what they were doing from you know closing schools to mm. essentially closing hospitals to all but COVID patients will have had awful consequences. And they just didn't take them into account. And I also think, coming back to your original question, really, the whole psychological impact, the impact on our philosophy, if you like, and on our whole sort of moral backbone has only been negative. Uh, I see zero upsides and plenty of downsides from the whole experience of lockdown. It teaches us to be dependent. It teaches us to be frightened. It teaches us to be overcautious. It teaches us to be hypochondriac and self-obsessed. It's just negative, it seems to me. It's not how a vigorous, modern, innovative, grown-up society behaves. And I'm afraid to say it's our leaders, both political and scientific and indeed in other walks of life, like academia generally and in the media, have led us to this place. And yeah, they would argue they've copied other countries. And I think that's one of the most unfortunate aspects of this whole affair is that whenever they're a bit worried that the policies, albeit radical, they're adopting are destructive, they say, well, well they're, they're doing it in France and yeah. they're doing it in Germany and yeah. they're doing it in Spain and they're doing it in America and Canada. So therefore it must be the right thing to do. Well, not necessarily. The way I see it is that surely the lesson of the past year is how dangerous safetyism can be. So it's dangerous from the perspective of the cult of safetyism in relation to lockdown because of diseases that have gone undiagnosed and cancers that have gone untreated and all those other things that we're familiar with. Intellectual safetyism is dangerous because you're never taking the intellectual risks that might allow society to discover progressive ways of organizing society or treating illnesses and all those other things which demand a leap into the unknown very often to discover those things. It demands an intellectual risk. Personal safetyism is dangerous. If you, if you think about the safe space that young people and students are encouraged to hide in so that they never hear a, a crossword or a disagreeable idea, that cultivates ignorance, a, a lack of curiosity. I mean, in so many areas of life, you can really see the 
the deadening impact that the cult of safetyism has, but very few people, certainly in officialdom, seem conscious of how destructive safetyism can be. So in your view, what is a good way? Because obviously, if you go out onto the streets and say, it's not good to be safe, people will think you're completely nuts. And it is good to be safe. Being safe is fine. Safetyism as a cult or an ideology is the problem we're talking about. So how would you convince people of the old, robust liberalism that encouraged individual self-sufficiency and risk-taking and exploration and a desire to expand the human footprint and human knowledge. How do you think that kind of attitude can be restored as we're coming out of one of the worst episodes of safetyism in modern times? If there were a simple and quick answer, then uh, that would be wonderful. I fear (laughs) it's a very grave, long-term problem Mm. that you've correctly diagnosed is insidious and is been growing for years, probably decades. And, you know, our modern way of life allows us to live a much more cosseted existence than would have previously been the case, both from the point of view of disease, but also risks of famine or war or other dangers that might have confronted us. And I think that allows society to lapse into a form of complacency and indolence and, as I said before, dependency, none of which I think are good things. And so you are fighting against the tide. And I genuinely don't have easy or straightforward answers as to how to re-educate people or at least uh, explain to them that there is another way and that, you know, staying safe at all costs in every respect is not the right answer. It's tough. I think I have discovered my own outlook on this particular conundrum through personal experience, especially in my career. But also I think actually being married to someone who works in the health service because that does give you a bit more perspective on life and death. I think unfortunately there is this extraordinary tendency in social media, modern digital media, to trend towards the sentimental and the woke and a virtue signaling which is so prevalent amongst the left and a lot of it is not very proportionate or genuine i think altogether it means that the idea of being a bit bolder being a bit more independent and being a bit more self-reliant and all these sort of positive things as i see them as well as being hardworking and so forth and so on. Many, what would have previously been considered virtues, Mm. are no longer seen as very relevant. And I'm afraid to say I sound, you know, like a very old-fashioned figure, but I think that the world we enjoy now was not built by people whose first concern every day was to virtue signal. And, you know, those in the past may have had their flaws, but, you know, I, I do question the priorities of certain aspects of society. I suppose trying to be more practical, I think one area of society that has gone very, very badly wrong and needs fixing are universities. Mm -hmm. Because I think academia informs a great deal of thinking, especially amongst young people, but also in the media, also in the whole non-profit sector, which is increasingly influential, and indeed in politics, 
And, of course, scientific media have dominated all the policies and interventions over the last 14 months. And what I think we didn't realise, I didn't realise maybe, is just how woke and virtue signalling science is now. Mm. The institutionalization of science in a political sense has become very powerful. And you only have to look at the stats, which they don't like publicizing, but it's obvious, as to the political leanings of those who dominate in our universities. And you realize that it's a particular lack of diversity there, which is, I think, the biggest single diversity problem our universities have which they don't ever want to talk about or admit to, that there is a uniformity of thought about you know, the importance of government and Brexit and lockdowns and so forth that is overwhelmingly dominant and damning of anyone who has a, a countervailing narrative. And so if I were in government, I would seek to address the issue of the universities. And I think to give them credit, as regards free speech, for example, the mm. government are making attempts. And, you know, things could be worse. This government could, you know, be the Labour Party. And I think <laughs> they would be trying to push it even further in the direction it's gone to uniformity. And a lot of the most important moments and movements in modern times... Russian Revolution and others, it's the students and the universities that played a critical role, actually. I don't mean in terms of research discoveries. I mean in terms of revolts or in movements that kicked off revolutions and such like. And so I think our 160, 200 universities are a great strength of this country in terms of, for example, Oxford helped develop the AstraZeneca vaccine. How brilliant is that? However, I also think our universities dominate the thinking too powerfully of the upper echelons of society with safetyism, precautionary principle, belief in more government, etc. And that narrative should be addressed. So, you know, if you were to focus on one area of society to try and change the conversation, I would say universities. I think that point you make about the politicization of science is really important. And the, I think one of the problems of the past few years has been the way in which science has been treated as a source of moral and political authority. So if you look at the climate change issue, for example, you will often hear people, including Greta Thunberg and others, say, listen to the science. They always say the science, you know, the definitive science, which no one is allowed to question. It essentially becomes the word of God. And the more that sections of the political elites use science to pursue a political agenda, the more science is going to inevitably be corrupted. And I think some of that has played out in the lockdown era as well. Okay, so finally, we've got a big job on our hands. We have to rescue science from its corruption. We have to rescue politics from its fearfulness. We have to fix the universities, fix the universities, fix the education system, encourage people to appreciate the virtue of risk and courage and autonomy over the cult of safetyism. So there's a lot on our plate. So I want to end with a question I kind of started with as well, is whether you feel optimistic about our ability to do these things. Now, that's a difficult question to answer coming out of the strangest year in that any of us can remember. 
But do you feel optimistic that these things can be done or, or are you a pessimist? I've always liked to think of myself as an optimist. I suppose most of us do. Uh, and you know what, Brendan, if you had asked me in the depths of January, are you feeling optimistic when it was dark and cold and we were, you know, in the bowels of a lockdown, most things were pretty bloody gloomy. I think I would have given you a different answer. Well, as we are now in May, you know, one can sense the sunlit uplands ahead mm. because most things will be open properly by the 17th of May. We hope, and I think it is entirely possible, that actually most everything is open by late June, the rate we're going, even with this government and all their fibs. The weather is better. As I said earlier, actually unemployment, bankruptcies, etc., not as bad as one might have feared. It's amazing what cheap money can do. Mm. Of course, there are very grave long-term problems that need fixing, such as, you know, politicisation of science and our universities and, you know, the threats to free speech and the over-adoption of safetyism. However, as an entrepreneur, somebody who takes risks for a living, I've always been an optimist, and mostly it's paid off, frankly. I think in the long run, society shows. My father, with an historian, always said, in the long run, the optimists are the winners. People actually forget the pessimists, and every generation has always had pessimists. You don't want to go down labels as a pessimist. No mm. one does. That's no fun. You actually want to see the positives and try and build on, on the good things. Although we're in a minority, we're not alone. I think over time, actually views will change about whether lockdowns were a good idea or not. Just as, you know, you only need to now utter that phrase, weapons of mass destruction, mm. yeah? Mm. And I think we will be surprised at how people will uh, quietly uh, say, well, I never really believed in lockdowns, you know, and uh, I was against <laughs> them from the beginning and uh, so forth. And I, I always knew they had a lot of costs accompanying them. And so... I think there is a task ahead, specific, discrete task of, as I said earlier, making sure lockdowns can never happen again. And I think that requires a joint effort by many different groups to put various pressures on government and other entities that promoted these disastrous in interventions to make sure that the undemocratic and unparliamentarian way in which they were introduced can't happen and that our freedoms cannot be withdrawn in the way they were, and that we will take a more thoughtful and considered view as to actually what's the best method. Rather than panic, deal with the next virus, because there will be another one, in a more considered way, such that we don't cause so much. You know, it's every doctor knows that every drug has side effects. And one of the reasons why for example, many drugs don't ever get launched, it's because their side effects are too terrible. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is, they call this a non-pharmaceutical intervention. If it were a pharmaceutical intervention, for example, the side effects would be so colossal, they wouldn't even dream of ever introducing it. But because lockdowns never had any clinical trials. So, you know, they were able to get away without saying, what side effects? Mm -hmm. Well, the side effects are just too grave. And so... Having had a sort of quasi-thalidomide experience, God forbid, with lockdowns, we have to make sure we don't repeat it. And so the task for the likes of yourselves at Spike, who have been brilliant throughout in terms of a, at times almost lone voice, speaking very fiercely and bravely about how important it is to not just swallow the narrative whole and question things, all those of us who 
can sense the truth, need to continue to bang this drum, to not give up, because we need to gather our forces properly so that, you know, when the inquests happen, when, you know, new methods are adopted for the next time, lockdown isn't among them. Luke Johnson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 